0: Hey there, my name is Allie, and welcome to A Noble Earthquake, a podcast about California history. So, when I first started planning this episode, I really thought it was going to be all about Jack O'Neill and his impact on surfing in California as a sort of tribute since he recently passed away earlier this summer. Uh, But as I started researching, that idea really had to reshape itself, which is so typical of research when it comes to writing. Um, You kind of have to follow that research wherever it takes you. And this was quite the journey. Uh, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with all of you. So before we really get into it, I do just want to say Jack O'Neill was a pioneer in the world of surfing and he died earlier this summer in Santa Cruz. And on July 9th, uh, there were paddle outs around the world in his honor. There was a huge one in Santa Cruz. Uh, if you Google images of that, it's really quite striking I'm not a surfer by any means. I love being in the ocean and growing up in New England meant summers spent in Maine swimming in the Atlantic. So to me, swimming in the Pacific doesn't feel too cold. Uh, when I first started planning this episode, I thought it would be great to talk about Jack O'Neill, his impact on surfing, kind of as a tribute. But holy crap, this episode ballooned into something bigger. Uh, so instead of focusing on... O'Neill. Specifically, we're going to really zoom out a bit and talk about the history of surfing uh, as it relates to its impact on California. We're going to start this story in 1907, when a young man named George Freeth traveled from Hawaii to Southern California on a trip arranged by the Hawaiian Tourism Board. Freeth was of Irish and Royal Hawaiian descent and had learned to surf back home on Waikiki Beach. When he arrived, he decided to check out the surf on the recently established Venice Beach. This, of course, drew the attention of locals who had never seen surfing before. And it also drew the attention of railroad baron and collector Henry Huntington, the same Huntington that would eventually give Southern California The Huntington Library, and Henry's going to get his own episode and feature heavily in some others that I'm working on. Huntington was in competition with Abbott Kinney, a real estate developer who happened to be developing Venice Beach and had built up the Venice Pier. Huntington, looking to develop the area around Redondo Beach, paid Freeth to surf at Redondo instead of Venice, and Freeth's surfing displays would attract people to Redondo, and to get there, they'd have to use Huntington's red car streetcars. And it was a win win for both Freeth, who was being paid, and Huntington, who was making a crap ton of money off of people taking his railroads. Freeth gave surfing demonstrations every day, twice a day at Redondo, outside of the Hotel Redondo, attracting a ton of publicity. And this might have been considered the moment when surfing really took root in California and also the birth of professional surfing because again, he was being paid to do this. The following summer, Freeth became a lifeguard at Venice Beach, the first lifeguard ever in the history of lifeguarding. This is not a well-known fact apparently and I didn't even know that, like I wish I had known about George Freeth when I was taking a four-credit lifeguarding class in college because my final essay would have been a whole lot better and more interesting and less high, can you tell I'm bored. Anyway, Freeth became the first lifeguard in history and introduced the idea of lifeguarding as a way to make beaches safer to swim on. Up until this point, people didn't really use beaches to go swimming. Uh, Freeth created the Venice Volunteer Lifesaving Corps, with fellow surfers that had come to the area. Now, George Freeth seems to ping-pong back and forth between Venice and Redondo. The following summer, after creating the Venice Lifesaving Corps, Henry Huntington hired him back at Redondo as a paid lifeguard. Freeth, being a surfer, was in excellent physical condition, keeping in mind that boards in 1908 were made of solid wood and could weigh up to 100 pounds. He trained his lifeguards to swim well and be strong, and in 1912, he opened the first surf club on the mainland. He eventually ended up moving to San Diego to work as a lifeguard at Ocean Beach, and San Diego has a huge military presence, both then and now, and it was a hotbed of activity during World War I. Many off-duty servicemen cycled through the port, and with that eventually came Spanish influenza. And despite being extremely healthy and in great shape, Freeth eventually succumbed to the flu in 1919 and died at the age of 35. He is responsible for making people feel safe to swim in the ocean and for establishing the roots of the California beach culture that we know today, as well as lifeguarding, which is so cool. Flash forward to the 1920s. Beach culture is really starting to take hold in Southern California. Surfing is still relatively inaccessible, though, because the boards were still really heavy. They're made of solid redwood, and a 10-foot board could, again, weigh up to 100 pounds or more. Luckily, you're in Southern California, where engineers and scientists are working on testing the newest materials to develop lighter and faster airplanes. Balsa wood was being used to build airplane wings due to how light and buoyant it was. And some industrious surfers gave this material a shot, but unfortunately, balsa is also pretty porous, so eventually your board just becomes a giant sponge and absorbs so much water that it sinks. And that's not really what you want out of a surfboard. Q. Tom Blake, born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1902, nowhere near an ocean Blake met surf and swimming champion Duke Kahanamoku while he was on a swimming tour. Inspired by meeting the Big Kahuna, Blake decided to move to Los Angeles and take up competitive swimming. He became a lifeguard at Santa Monica Beach and decided then he would try surfing. He loved it so much that he took a trip to Hawaii to just immerse himself in the culture. And when he came back to California he started working on designs for a newer and lighter board. The source that I got this information from claims that this chunk of the story might be apocryphal, but Blake claims to have drilled holes out of a new 16-foot board he shaped and then sealing that with a thin layer of plywood to create a hollow board. But there are other stories that suggest that Blake's hollow board was built the same way that the wings of the Lockheed Vega airplane were built, Uh, which was an internal rib topped by plywood sheets. However, Blake managed to create this new board. He recognized its importance and filed for a patent, receiving it in 1932. He licensed the mass production of hollow boards to Thomas Rogers Company in Venice, where they just so happened to build airplane wings. Y'all catching on to what's happening right here? I hope so. So of course, with the introduction of mass produced boards, surfing became more accessible to a broader base of folks interested in trying it out. The creation and development of the hollow board helped drive the growth of surfing in Southern California and the aerospace industry helped drive the growth of surfboard tech. It was right around this point in the research where I realized I was going to have to like completely change the focus of this episode, just in case you were wondering. Uh, As you can probably imagine, the increase in white-collar engineering and aerospace jobs, as well as the growing attraction to California's emerging beach culture, led to more development along the Southern California coast. Keeping beaches open and accessible meant competing with private property owners, oil companies, railroads, the shipping industry, and private boaters. Development of the coast through the building of new shipping harbors affected the shape of beaches down the coast, which had a direct impact on surfing breaks and where to find good waves. And with the increase in population also meant an increase in waste. Los Angeles population boom resulted in sewage runoff dumping into the LA River, which drained to the beaches and forced beach closures due to hazardous conditions, which is gross. Luckily, the idealized notion of beach culture and the particular and in particular, the surfing community fought for the protection of beaches and is partially responsible for cities in Southern California finally choosing to deal with beach cleanup and making their uh, waste management systems cleaner and better for the environment. Of course, somewhere in all of this research, I had to go find a connection to Massachusetts, and I did. In 1900, Frederick Hastings Ringe and his wife, May, ended up as the owners of Malibu Point. Ringe died in 1905, leaving his widow, May, to care for the property by herself when this happened the railroads began to hone in on malibu point trying to buy out the land to extend their real estate holdings lay down tracks and eventually allow for development along the coast but may would have none of this and managed to save the land from railroad development of course she also wanted to keep the land private including the beach and the surf breaks below and she eventually lost that battle to la county however her efforts to keep the railroad off of malibu point kept the area relatively undeveloped until private landowners began building their own homes along the now county-owned land. How does this connect back to my home state? Frederick Hastings Ringe was the founder of the Ringe Technical School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which eventually became today's Cambridge Ringe and Latin School. Booyah! Surfing and beach culture had another opponent to deal with, and that was the booming oil business. In the 1920s, Southern California was producing one-fifth of the nation's total oil supply. The book that I used for the majority of my research on this episode had some amazing photographs of Huntington Beach from the 30s or 40s. And it shows this beach scene, like everybody's at the beach, and then there's just hundreds of oil derricks in the background. With people swimming in the water, just so close to oil. And I am going to post that uh, on the show notes on my blog, and I will post it on Twitter as well, because y'all got to see this picture. It's insane. But of course, swimming this close to oil wells was bad news. The derricks and nearby refineries polluted both the air and the water, drumming up legal battles throughout the 1920s and 30s over the use of the beaches. Were they going to be used for recreational purposes, or were they going to belong to the oil companies? Luckily, in the 1930s, recreational purposes won out, though I just did some Googling because as I've made abundantly clear, I know very little about things in California and wanted to cover my bases. Apparently, drilling in Southern California is still very much a thing. I like vaguely remember seeing some offshore drilling platforms the last time we were in LA, but we kind of stuck around Santa Monica and Anaheim. Um, but I guess further south, there are still platforms close to the, to the shore. Um, I, f- I found some photos of an offshore platform in Santa Barbara from 2016, where there's all these naturally occur- occurring oil slicks pretty frequently. And it's just crazy. But if someone listening happens to know more about this, I'd love to hear it. So uh, please comment on the Twitter page or the blog or, you know, like pigeon smoke signals. Just let me know. Have you been swimming in the Pacific? Up here in Northern California, it's pretty dang cold, but apparently it doesn't get much warmer the further south you go. Since surfing first became popular in Southern California, surfers wouldn't be able to spend much time in the water because they could eventually get too cold and risk hypothermia. You know who else is having that problem? Navy bomb divers. Caltech physicist Hugh Bradner was an avid swimmer, water polo coach, and abalone diver. Bradner had worked on the Manhattan Project in the 1940s, and after the war, had started working on atomic bomb testing in the Marshall Islands. This work eventually got him involved with the National Academy of Sciences' panel on underwater swimmers, as Bradner had previously expressed concerns about divers staying under in the cold water for too long. Up until this point, dry suits were the only means of protecting divers from cold water exposure, but they were made of solid rubber and not very flexible. Bradner began working on materials for a new suit, recognizing that staying warm didn't necessarily mean you couldn't get wet, you just didn't want the water your body warmed up to constantly circulate out. He began working with polychloroprene, otherwise known as neoprene, created by DuPont scientists in the 1930s. DuPont also created nylon, which Bradner soon began incorporating into his neoprene suit designs for more flexibility. The Navy needed suits that would keep their divers warm and absorb shocks they might encounter in the course of their work. Conveniently, this also suited the needs of surfers. And this is where history seems to do its usual thing taking different narratives depending on who's telling the story. When I first started doing research for this episode, I was under the impression that Jack O'Neill had invented the wetsuit, but O'Neill, Bradner, and then Bill and Bob Mistral all began working on neoprene wetsuits between 1951 and 1952. It's just that O'Neill had the commercial viability to market wetsuits out of his new surf shop in Santa Cruz, and then he created the O'Neill brand that we all know today, and that's why he is so popular and well-known, while these other stories um, to the general public might not be so well-known. Until now. So the wetsuit is being invented, allowing surfers to stay in the water longer and catch more waves. But what about the boards? Many boards were either Blake hollow boards or still being shaped out of heavy wood, making it hard for all but the strongest of individuals to take up surfing. Enter Bob Simmons. Earlier in his life, his elbow was shattered in a car accident, and a fellow patient at the hospital suggested he take up surfing as a way to rebuild strength in his arm. He built his first board from a Tom Blake hollow board kit. Simmons had also studied at Caltech along with Hugh Bradner, but dropped out to become a machinist and began working at Douglas Aircraft. It was there that he was introduced to polystyrene foam, commonly known as styrofoam, and began using that along with fiberglass and resin to make a stronger, lighter weight surfboard. In order to shape his board, Simmons combined his knowledge of hydrodynamics with military R&D. His boards were designed to be similar to the hulls of naval PT boats, which cut through the water with ease. Simmons never profited from his designs, though he sold them to individuals who requested them. He died in 1954, surfing at Wind Sea in La Jolla. Simmons Reef is named after him. Surfing really took off in Southern California in the post-war era due to its established base in the 1930s and an increase in swimming abilities aided by local and federal governments. War had driven the growth of Southern California, becoming the aerospace capital of the world— Between that and NASA's presence, the area was booming with jobs. It seemed like this is really where the idealized notion of California living was born to me. You know, teenagers were growing up in the area with this near perfect weather almost year round. Their parents are pretty darn wealthy and there's tons of beaches nearby. Like that all combined just sounds like every movie I ever saw that took place in California during my childhood. (music) By the mid-1950s, polyurethane foam had been developed by the defense industry and trickled down to the surfing world as a new material for boards. Surfer David Sweet began blowing his own polyurethane foam to make his boards, eventually creating his own business, Dave Sweet Surfboards. Foam boards were also being developed by Hobie Atler and Gordon Grubby Clark in Laguna Beach, but there's enough evidence to suggest that Sweet beat them to market by over a year. John Blankenship and Bill McCusick were also working on foam boards further south in San Diego. Fiberglass resin was another engineering advancement that aided in surfboard design. Because the resin could hold up to the salt water, board designers were able to attach fins to the bottom of their boards. This created even more new board designs and allowed for new styles of surfing to emerge, as well as changed yet again where surfers could go for waves. <laughs> of course, surfing's boom was aided in no small part by the s- entertainment industry. The 1959 film Gidget introduced surfing as a wholesome sport that anyone could try, which was partially true with the newer, lighter weight boards being mass-produced. More surf movies followed, but none took hold like the 1966 hit The Endless Summer. The film follows surfers Robert August and Mike Heinson to lineups around the world and was made on a budget of $50,000. When filmmaker Bruce Brown showed it to a crowd in Wichita, Kansas in the dead of winter, the reaction was telling. It was a huge hit. When it was released to theaters in 66, the film raked in $30 million. I've never seen this movie, but I had a high school science teacher that was obsessed with it. He had like three posters in our classroom and brought it up probably every week. And I think I was absent on the day that he was like, we're not going to learn science today. We're going to watch a surfing movie instead. Because of course I'm going to miss that. The 1960s were turbulent times for the country, and this had an effect on Southern California as well as the surfing community. Drugs affected surf culture. Uh, Not only the ingestion of drugs claiming lives, but surfers soon began using their boards as a way to smuggle drugs into the country. The Brotherhood of Eternal Love is probably the most infamous of these surf smuggling gangs. They created a smuggling drug ring that eventually was worth $200 and was responsible for half the LSD and hash sold in the United States. That is insane. And also, maybe because I, like, only know stereotypical surf culture... It doesn't necessarily surprise me. Um, But also the war in Vietnam had its impact on surf culture. And if you've seen Apocalypse Now, you might know that it's connected. One in seven soldiers in Vietnam were Californians. So it's safe to say that a fair few of them were surfers. But these surfers had an impact on their time in Vietnam as well. The military had established China Beach as an R&R facility. And once surfers saw the waves, they began sending home for their boards. Eventually, this little respite became known as the South China Sea Surf Club. Some surfers even ended up serving their time in the military as lifeguards at China Beach as more servicemen began taking advantage of the waves. So that's just a glimpse of the immense impact surfing has had on California over the years. I really could have kept going with it, but the research would have taken far longer than I was able to give to producing one of these episodes. And then this episode would have probably been like two hours long. This is the trouble with history. It sucks you in and doesn't let you go. Maybe that's just me, I don't know, but I think you probably know what I'm talking about if you're listening to this podcast. But before I go, I want to tell you guys about a few museums and a book that you should check out if this episode has piqued your interest. First, I want to highly recommend the book The World in the Curl, An Unconventional History of Surfing, by Peter Westwick and Peter Nachel. This book was the foundation for this episode, and it's so well written. Anybody who has a cursory interest in surfing and history would really enjoy it. Highly recommend getting it. I linked to it on the show notes, don't worry. I also want to recommend checking out the California Surf Museum in Oceanside. They currently have an exhibit called China Beach, Surfers, Vietnam, and the Healing Power of Wave Riding on view until the end of the year. They also have a number of permanent exhibits that range from the evolution of the surfboard and the evolution of the fin to the use of coastal monitoring to determine the best swells in the area. And I'll link to that on the blog as well and on Twitter. And you can also visit their exhibits online if you're too far away to visit. But who doesn't want to go to Southern California? Definitely also check out the Surfing Heritage and Cultural Center in San Clemente. They have some online images that I'll link to. And the International Surfing Museum located in Huntington Beach. And of course, up here in Northern California, the city of Santa Cruz operates the Santa Cruz Surfing Museum out of this little lighthouse uh, right off the coast. All of these museums' websites helped immensely with research for this podcast, so obviously I had to give them a big shout-out. So that's going to do it for this episode of A Noble Earthquake. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you guys had as much fun listening to this episode as I had writing it. This week's intro outro music is Surfing Day by Marcos Bolanos. It might remain the intro outro music because it's super peppy and I really like it. Keep in mind, if you have any questions or comments, you can tweet the podcast at Noble Earthquake. You can send me an email, earthquake at gmail.com, or you can leave comments on the show notes, which are on my personal blog, alireco.com. So I will catch you guys next time. It's going to be another summer hit. I promise.